Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I thought I had normal periods. I thought I was normal. Everybody's normal is different. Those things need to be checked out. I joked with my doctor, I said, why don't people care about us? You know, we're suffering. Welcome. You are tuned into Monuments to Me, brought to you by Revolt. This podcast is a space for honest and relevant conversations meant to recharge Black women and inspire you on your journey. We're your hosts, Akila Friend and Ty McRae, and each week we'll be addressing a range of topics from self-care, entrepreneurship, to politics and relationships. Join us as we explore the ups and downs and bask in the joys of Black womanhood. Black women and those who love Black women, welcome back to this protected space. This is Monuments to Me, another episode of your new favorite podcast brought to you by Revolt. We're your host. I'm Akila Friend. And I'm Ty McRae. Yes. And today we are really going to go into an important and necessary conversation, not only for women, for health, but really specifically for Black women, given the stats, given the odds, and given a lot of our personal experiences. Who better to talk about fibroids than Tanika Gray-Valbrun, as well as Ashley Gardner? And, you know, we can go on and on about why these two women are really leading the way in our opinions, but we'd rather start off with them giving their own story and really owning the narrative as they've done so well outside of Monuments to Me. So Tanika, if you can start off with just giving a brief overview of who you are and why this conversation of fibroids meant you needed to be on this episode. And then Ashley, if you can just do the same. Absolutely. Well, thank you ladies so much for having me. I'm thrilled and honored to be here tonight to discuss something that you all mentioned before, which is uterine fibroids, which affects 80% of Black women by the time they are 50. And any type of stat like that, we need to be having this conversation on the subway, at church, going out with our girlfriends. We need to be conversing about why this plagues our community so much. So I'm just honored to be here to have the opportunity to share my story and to share why we need to continue this conversation. So I'm Tanika Gray-Valbrun. I am a journalist by trade, and I am also the founder of The White Dress Project. We are a nonprofit organization that is completely and wholly dedicated to raising awareness of uterine fibroids and making sure that every person who suffers manages life, undergoes surgery from uterine fibroids, understands that they are in community, they are not alone, and they do not have to suffer in silence. And I always say that anything else that was 80% of anything, you know, we would be (laughs) marching in the streets, you know, there'd be campaigns, walks, runs, go fund, all of it. But for whatever reason, which I have my own thoughts, which will probably- We're going to get, get into through. those for real. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly, Akila. Ashley, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and you know why this conversation was equally important for you to be a part of. Yeah, so I am Ashley Gardner. I'm super passionate about diversity and equity, <laughs> which is going to be, I'm sure, a huge topic in this conversation. 
By day, I serve as a program manager at Google. And by night, I am a content creator. So I started my own digital platform where I talk about lifestyle, which includes me having a hysterectomy at the age of 32. So a lot to dig in there. That was a huge decision for me, obviously, being so young. We can discuss it more, but I am so happy to talk to y'all. And for the listeners, if you haven't already, go back and listen to the other episodes because they were very amazing yes. and very touching. So love that. Thank y'all. Love Appreciate that. And show. that's why I had to Thank pause because I was like, the difference. Mm, love it. Yeah. Go ahead, Ty. I was going to say first, thank you, Ashley, for the shout out and for listening. But there's so many words we're about to throw at people in terms of scientific terminology, myomectomy. Tanika, I wonder if you could just start us off with some education. Like what what are they and what are the different things that people might go through? Really appreciate that question because a part of the problem sometimes while we're not talking about it is because a lot of the words are in this like physician science research world. And we don't know, you know, that we just know that our periods are heavy and we just know that we're bent over in pain. And we don't know that that's called dysmenorrhea. And we don't know that myomectomy is the surgical removal of fibroids. So a part of having these conversations is making sure that we are abreast of what is happening in our body and what the scientific and medical terms are. And it really is a lot of times our responsibility because, you know, all of us have been to the doctor and we know they got like five minutes, seven minutes tops with us. And then it's on to the next patient. So at the White Dress Project, we really talk about how can you be your own best health advocate? So I I don't claim to be a doctor. I don't play one on TV, but just through my work, through the work of the organization and through my personal experiences, I do know that a myomectomy is the surgical removal of fibroids. So you go in, usually um, you can do it laparoscopically where they can go in through your belly button or you can get what's called the C-section cut, which is usually a cut from your hip to your hip. And they literally go in and resect the fibroids, which is the surgery that I had. And obviously Mm. Ashley had a different surgery, which is the complete removal of her uterus, which is a hysterectomy. But in between there, there are um, quite a few different procedures that can be done for uterine fibroids in particular. That's really good to know because to be honest, for me, my knowledge of fibroids really started with um, Cynthia from Real Housewives of Atlanta. If you guys remember, Mm. she was super vocal during, I forget what season, about the fact that she had fibroids. And what I just remembered her talking about was just the expansion of her stomach. Like it was bigger and not really knowing why, figuring out it was fibroids. And then we didn't really follow the journey too much, but it just all of a sudden she didn't have them anymore. It wasn't that big of a deal. Or that's what the way it seemed. Like, okay, this is just routine procedure. They caught it. You figured it out. And that was that. But what you all are talking about, it sounds like the experiences were very much like, one, how did you even know <laughs> that this was a thing? And two, was it as simple as going in and deciding, hey, I want to do this, this procedure or that procedure and get it done and you go back to your life? Yeah. So for me, I learned that I have fibroids during my first pregnancy. Oh. I thought I had normal periods because my mother also 
suffered from fibroids, had extremely heavy bleeding. So changing a super large pad size every hour was normal for her. It was normal for me. I didn't think anything was wrong. I thought it was normal to take ibuprofen to get rid of the cramps Mm -hmm. because I saw my mom do it, saw a lot of other women in my community do it. So I just share all of that to say, I thought all of that was normal. I thought I was normal. I figured out that it wasn't normal when I was pregnant. I did my And how old were you um, when you were pregnant? Just curious. I was 26. 26 26 at the time. Mm. 26, best shape of my life, right? Because <laughs> they they also say that, you know, unhealthy diets mm-hmm. and not being physical can contribute. Uh, but honestly, research, the research is not there mm-hmm. to tell us why this occurs, right? But yeah, so I ended up finding out through a scan, an anatomy scan that I had a fibroid and they were very concerned. At the time, I had a doctor who happened to be a soror. So she took very, very good care of me. She said, this is very important to pay attention to because what can happen is your baby can lose supply because the fibroid can take all of it. What? So we have to monitor. I know, I know. And the goal here is is to, we want the baby to grow, not the fibroid to grow during pregnancy, right? And so if it's in reverse, that can harm baby and it can harm mother. So that's when I figured this all out. It was very serious because I had to go see a specialist That was my first time really digging into it, doing research and understanding what my body was going through. Oh, my goodness. You said something that I want to dig down into. You said I was taken very good care of because the doctor was a soror. And it just hits me that so many black women don't get really good medical care. Unless it feels like someone has to take a special interest in your case. And so I think we should talk about that because it's related to fibroids. Even what you were saying, Tanika, about how there's two different ways to do a myomectomy, there's laparoscopic and they could do that C-section cut. All the research shows that black women are much more likely to get the C-section cut and less likely to get the laparoscopic surgery. Hmm. And they're not referred to specialists who can do the laparoscopic surgery. So I just want to know if we can pause here for a second and talk about some of the disparities in the care that people receive and how I'm celebrate 50 years of the Timberland original yellow boot and the culture that made it an icon. The Timberland hip hop royalty boot remixes the classic in a glorious purple waterproof leather with premium crafted details inspired by the four pillars of hip hop, DJing, graffiti, emceeing, and breakdancing. Get yours in select stores or at Timberland.com available in men's women's and youth sizes. Timberland, Built for the bold. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba da ba ba ba. Important it is to advocate for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I want to add one disparity that I actually faced. So I have two kids. I was pregnant three times, had a miscarriage very first time, but two experiences going full term with my babies. The first time I had a Black female doctor, she discovered my fibroid, sent me to a specialist, made certain that we were very aware that this is a serious matter. Pun. Okay, okay, sorry. Um, <laughs> very serious. <laughs> but this is I did serious. not know that. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> so the second time around, I ended up moving. So I had to see another physician. And at the time, she was a white female. She did not bring up any signs of my fibroid. So I'm like, oh, did they go away? By the time that I got 20 weeks pregnant, I asked about it. I said, hey, are my fibroids still there? Like, what's going on? And she goes, oh, yeah, they are, but it's nothing serious. And I was like, uh, <laughs> my first pregnancy, they sent me to a specialist to make sure that I was hitting every milestone, that it didn't grow any larger, things of that sort. And she said, uh, well, let me just give me a second. Let me go check. She checked with another black doctor. The black doctor came in and said, oh, this is very serious. She needs to see a specialist immediately. Oh, my God. Oh, no. (laughs) That, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That was my cue to get another Mm -hmm. doctor. And so I did. I'm surprised because it was a female doctor, too. And I know fibroids definitely higher in black women, but it's not like it's you know, insignificant in white women either. So I think just, it's just interesting to me that that was your, you know, reaction or that was your experience. Yeah. My understanding is that black women get them sooner and have more of them. Mm. And I wonder if when a doctor hears that statistic, if they then write it off, like, oh, this is just something that black women have. Like I can't be in the minds of a non-black woman or or anyone's mind, but my own, but I struggle. It's frustrating when they don't take your concerns as seriously or even your pain as seriously. And of course it starts to get in your head where you start to minimize it, you know? Mm -hmm. Agreed. I think that's happening Ty, more than we really want to admit in our community. We hear about this all the time. And every time I hear somebody saying that they got dismissed or, you know, somebody didn't believe them. I'm always like, what is happening? Like, why are we still telling patients that hysterectomy is their only option, that we should just watch and wait with fibroids? Because the reality is that even if you watch and wait, something is going to happen with them because their anatomy and the job of fibroids is to grow. So Mm -hmm. this idea that we're just watching and waiting, like Ashley was told, you know, like it, it doesn't really make sense to me. And and even if we are watching and waiting, we really have to watch so that they aren't growing to the point where surgery is is our only option. Really quickly, I just want to go back to something Ashley said, which was she thought that everything was normal. She thought that bleeding mm-hmm. like this was normal and the pain was normal. And I had the same experience. My mom had fibroids, so I was familiar with them, but I just thought that like, oh, I'm a woman. So everybody changes a pad, you know, every 30 minutes. And I remember when I was growing up and going to the grocery store to buy pads and I'd look at the tampons like, who is wearing these? How are they holding (laughs) any kind of blood? Because I just knew how much I was bleeding. So I just Mm -hmm. couldn't even fathom what are these little sticks of cotton doing? I have never, admittedly, never worn a tampon in my life. That's how heavy my fibroids have been. And not that they don't have super maxi tampons and all of that, but I've just never had that comfort. Because I've always felt like, no, my period is way too heavy. How can these things hold? So I just I just wanted to bring that up because I think the point that Ashley made about normalizing it is what happens so much. Like, yeah, my mother always taught me, take the ibuprofen bef- the moment you feel the mm-hmm. cramping, right? Mm. But we're not even talking about, but why are you cramping though? Mm. And I yeah. think that when we 
really delve into pain and bleeding and really think about it's not really what's normal, but what is your body doing? And I think that's what we need to know. What is happening in your body? And is that a symptom of something greater? That's good. But how do we do that? Because I think we're getting better, but I still remember watching some like special where they were talked about the first time someone said period on TV. It was Monica from Friends and it was like mm. a big deal in like the early 90s or maybe, I don't know if it was late 80s or early 90s, but either way, we can't even say it in public. So how do we get to the point where enough women are talking about it? So I had someone close to me in my family who had fibroids and I actually didn't know the extent of like what they were going through until we were talking about surgery. So even within our own families, we don't have these conversations or what's normal for one family, like the pain becomes normalized. So how do you think that women should begin to educate themselves? Like what are some of the things you might teach within the, within the white dress project? Right. I think it's having conversations like this all the time, like making it conversational, making it something that we don't feel that this is like a silo and you're alone in this. Like no one should feel alone in this because 50% of the population bleeds. So why do we have this stigma? Why do we have this embarrassment? I'm originally from Jamaica. So in our culture, you know, talking about periods, sex, anything below the belt is just like a no go. Mm -hmm. We don't even talk about going to the gynecologist until you're becoming a woman. <laughs> becoming a woman, I guess, is is when you have sex. So I think that there's a lot of cultural work to be done, a lot of stigmas to be erased. But to answer your question, I think ultimately having these conversations, like everything can't be, you know, about fashion and what's happening on TikTok. Like we need to be like, girl, what happened at your pap smear? Like yeah, that's it. How many that's pads it. are you changing? Because <laughs> I'm your girlfriend and I want to know. It's not just about some of the trivial things we talk about. And I am the most self-proclaimed girly girl. I can talk fashion and dresses and makeup all day long with you. But I also want to know, okay, sis, you've canceled on me three times in a row because of your period. Yep. Like, what's mm. up? Because the and heavy bleeding and the pain is not what it needs to be checked out. It definitely does, but it also makes me nervous, like, you know, just thinking through, well, what if that, what other symptoms? Because I've heard about, like, sometimes they said, okay, the cure or some way to kind of stall it is just healthy dieting and things of that nature. I've never had, like, an abnormal period or anything of that nature, nor have I had anyone in my family that I know of because, you know, I'm, I'm also Jamaican descent and literally no one talks about <laughs> these things, so I can agree with you there. But at the same time, it's like... I, to my knowledge, no one in my family has ever had fibroids. You know, a, a close friend of mine told me about her experience last year. But even that, her experience was seemed to be very siloed too, just figuring things out. Who does she turn to? Like what, trying to figure out the research on her own. But it wasn't necessarily due to heavy periods was, was, that, was that call out. It was more so cramps and just having like just very like a strenuous experience. And again, that bloated stomach. And so I'm just thinking through, if you don't have a history of something that's abnormal, how do you finally recognize, oh, this is now something to pay attention to, especially when it sounds like a lot of the doctors and the folks who are there for your care are not really alerting you of it either, you know? 
I love that question, Akila. And I think it becoming your own best health advocate and knowing what's happening in your body. Like you rightly said, you know, a lot of times we're not talking about this stuff. You know, we're kind of career focused. We're moving. We're shaking. We're social. So nobody has time to be thinking about like, you know, we're just trying to avoid it. But I think what needs to happen is that we need to monitor what's going on. The biggest thing that I did for my health journey was started to journal what would happen to me, what happens to me when I eat certain things or what happens to me when I don't take the Advil on time or what happens to me when I get a clot during my period. So starting to to write those things down so that when I went to the doctor, I'm like, listen, I know you only got limited time, but here's what's been happening for the past three periods and I don't know what to do with them. The point about not everything is symptomatic or has like genetic component or family family lineage. You know what I'm trying to say. Not everything is connected that way. But knowing what is happening in your body is so important. And I think anything that interrupts your quality of life is what needs to be paid attention to, which is why I loved when Ashley said normal, because everybody's normal is different. But if you are missing school, if you are missing work, social activities, if you are on the bathroom in fetal position, those things need to be checked out. One last point I want to make is that not everyone who has fibroids has the bleeding, has the bloating, all of that. But there is some variation of those things. And if anything is impacting your quality of life, it needs to be looked into. Totally. Right. Love it. What you said that really hit home was understand what's happening in your body. Because I, for so long, was so career driven that anything that was going to like stop me from being productive, I wanted to completely ignore, which often meant ignoring my body. I might take your advice and start a health journal now because I'm on this whole journey of, I'm calling it recovering workaholic, but we just over time get so disconnected from our bodies. I don't know what the reason is, if it's just the world we live in or me always working in like male dominated fields, but sometimes I would even be angry with my body around my period because I'm like, you're taking me off my A game. (laughs) Like. Three days when I'm not on my A game. And it's just like my obsession with productivity and accomplishment to the detriment of really spending time on your body, which is like what they say, it's the one, you know, it's like the the car God gave you that you can never really upgrade. (laughs) It's like take care of it, nurture it. So it's really hitting home. I'm going to start this health journal. And it sounds like it's going to take time, but it's like the time is worth it. I love that. Yeah. And I would even recommend to Tanika's point, like I did a little log, but I did mine electronically through Flow. There's an app called Flow. There's an app called Ease. They have symptoms attached to every single day. So if you're feeling bloated, if you're feeling super, you know, painful cramps, you can log that. And I still have mine from like years of periods. It's a good way to track it and log electronically if, if you don't want to. I've always it. wanted to do that. And then I get nervous about like some company. Oh yeah. Privacy. All the details. <laughs> Not even that. <laughs> I th- you like- know where I thought, I thought you, I thought the feminist in Utah was about to go to the abortion laws. I was like, I don't know with Roe v. Wade. I don't know if we want to, <laughs> I don't know how much we want to put in the. <laughs> Part of 
me nope. feels like they know everything anyway. I'm convinced they already know. I may as well use it to may my as well benefit. use it. I hear you. Or read the details of their like terms and conditions. Um, For sure. I used to work in yeah. tech too. Got to read the terms and conditions. Another thing I have found myself doing is like on the ride home from work, I'll turn on my voice notes and just start mm. to talk about, you know, not necessarily period, but just what's happened during the day, how I felt about it. But I think it's also a good tool to use during your period, because the goal of all of this is to be able to dictate it to the physician and to be able to know what's going on so that you're able to to quickly share. That's the point of this kind of like documentation, because as we already said, they don't have a lot of time. So I will go to the doctor and just play the voice note. Like, hey, I was in a meeting today, felt the gush of blood coming down my leg. I felt like I had two or three clots. I felt like pain was going down my right leg. I felt like my ovaries were rumbling. And, you know, it's not the scientific (laughs) terms, but they get it. And I think it's an easy, Mm -hmm. easier way for them. Because when you're in the doctor's office, you already feel that tension and their anxiety of having to get to the next patient. And then you're like, let me make sure I didn't forget anything. So this documentation is really a tool to help you help them. I feel like, you know, and this whole thing is bringing to me is why I'm so scared, to be honest. I'm scared when I, when people talk about, let's say, pregnancy. And obviously we talk about the discrepancies when it comes to childbearing and, and birth when it comes to Black women. And then with this, you know, obviously just being scared about the idea of like, oh my gosh, if I have to now deal with this or potentially go through with this, it seems like consistently in our healthcare system and just by nature of being a Black woman, it's just so much, the onus is so much on us, it feels like. And it makes me just annoyed. It makes me frustrated. It puts me in fight mode, which also makes me scared because it's kind of like the judge and the outcome is really based on do I let's say, survive this thing. And so with that, I just want to know more about your feelings when you were really going through this and making that decision between a hysterectomy and Tanika, you may have to remind me of what you got again, myescopy. I don't know how to pronounce that, (laughs) but myomectomy. myomectomy. But like what made you finally decide Were you forced into that decision one way or another? Did you feel forced? Was that something that you went in knowing all the pros, cons, et cetera? Just what made you decide that this is the choice that I'm going to make? Knowing for me, again, feeling like it really, the choice is ultimately up to you because are you really getting the right information from your providers? Yeah. So for me, something that I don't think I'm extremely clear about is the fact that everybody loves McDonald's fries. So yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba surgery was not my first option, Mm. right? Like a hysterectomy is not hopefully anyone's first option. I have been dealing with fibroids for knowingly for the past six years, right? Or how old am I? (laughs) Six or seven years, however old am I? I am. But I tried everything. Me and my doctor, we had conversations about diet, you know, let's cut beef, let's cut pork. We did that. I grew another fibroid. I'm like, what? (laughs) We talked about like certain teas that help with inflammation. 
that didn't work. I even got a fibroid coach. Do y'all know that those exist? Mm -hmm. I did not. Mm -hmm. Yes, they have fibroid coaches that coach you through, you know, your feelings around it, symptoms, diets, exercise to try to reduce the size of them and even sometimes get rid of them. Unfortunately, I wasn't successful, so they just took my little coins, but that's okay, you know? (laughs) You're not bitter at all. (laughs) You tried, you tried. (laughs) I tried, I tried. I wanted to exhaust all options, right? Mm -hmm. At this point, my doctor, we were talking the whole way through years of talking and trying new things. And she finally presented the surgical options, which she presented an ablation, which is where they, and Tanika, you're going to have to help me with this. When they scrape your uterine lining Mm -hmm. completely away, and it takes away your chances to have any more children. Mm. So I do want to say that because there are there are some options that you can still carry mm. a pregnancy and there are some that completely takes away that option. That is one. Um, she also mentioned a myomectomy, which you still have the opportunity to carry more children. However, she said there is a good chance that they can come back and you would go through it again. And she also presented another procedure that I cannot remember the name because it just scared me where you have to go through your groin and they pretty much freeze your uterine lining. And the last one was a hysterectomy. Now, the reason I chose a hysterectomy, it took me years to think about this. So this isn't like a weak type of decision or anything like that. But the reason that I chose it was because it was permanent. I knew that I would no longer be in pain from fibroids. I knew that I was very fortunate to have two kids already. And because of that, I made my decision. I didn't share with many people, right? Because a lot of people, even in your family, will try to talk you out of it. Like, you don't want to get rid of your uterus. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I didn't. But come to find out, I had fibroids cyst and endometriosis. Oh my God. And it's not even one of those things because it sounds like you were dealing with this again for years. You know, I I don't want to compare it to cancer, but that's just the the easiest correlation. You know how stage one, stage two, the earlier you get it, the easier the treatment. It sounds like even let's say stage one fibroids, if that's even such a thing, the same options and the same pain exists stage one as it may stage five, stage six. Is that what you're saying too? Or did it grow with time? Yeah. Where... It, it grew. So mm. your fibroids can grow. Okay. I never reduced, unfortunately. But yeah, it got so bad. Even I, I noticed the difference from my first pregnancy to my second pregnancy. I might have been like 10 weeks, 11 weeks. And I was already experiencing excruciating pain. Wow. Just from my fibroids alone. I, it could have been from my endometriosis as well, but I didn't know that I had that at the time. Right. So Well, you mentioned, Ashley, diet and you know, trying teas and trying red meat. And that's actually, when I think about fibroids, that's where my brain goes. Yeah. I know of Queen Afua and there's so much about health where we make it about like, where did we not fully like do the right thing in terms of we didn't eat all the right nuts and berries and we didn't exercise enough. But it sounds like with fibroids, you can do all of the right things and you still need serious medical interventions. And I also think that might, be what 
is part of the stigma with black women because it's like, is the fibroid growth your fault? Is it your fault for not being as healthy? And I wonder if we can just move away from that so yeah. that people feel less ashamed talking about it. For um, sure. So I don't know. Can you? I love that. I wonder if Tanika, if that's a part of the conversations you have with women in your organization and your awareness about like, there are things you can control and then there's times when you just have to go to modern medicine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the biggest things that we combat in our community that you feel like, I think Ashley said it earlier, that your body is failing you. Like you're, you don't have any control over your body. And when that happens, you have to think about the mental health component of that. You have to think about the mental health component when you're bleeding 21 days of the month, when you can't be social, when you can't wear white, when you can't, you know, sit long in a corporate meeting, when you're trying to climb the corporate ladder, uh. like all of these things. And I think back to Ashley's story and having to make all those like such important decisions about your health at that age seems like so daunting. We're just out here trying to, <laughs> where's the party yeah. at? You know what I mean? <laughs> like we're not trying to think about this, but we have to. And I think that, yes, it is a problem that we stigmatize this so much and we don't have the comfort in knowing that this is not our fault. I remember the first time I was starting the organization, my lovely, I'm an only child. So, you know, I am loved, loved. And my lovely Jamaican mother said to me, well, honey, don't tell everybody that you had 27 fibroids. That was how many fibroids I had taken out my first myomectomy. Don't tell anybody. And, you know, she was super proud that I was starting this organization. And yes, tell your story and blah, blah, blah. But just don't tell anybody you had 27. And I looked at her like, mommy, but I didn't put them there. For her, you know, we always say that your parents only teach you what they have been taught, right? So in her lifestyle and her upbringing, it was all about, you know, those things are very concealed. You keep those things private. You don't want people to judge you. You know, if you talk about those things, you're not classy, you're not sophisticated. All of these things that we tell ourselves that aren't true, but that have been in our family and we learn from our family and friends. So I remember that moment so much and I always tell it and she's always now like, don't tell that part that I said that, but it's just so true. <laughs> That she was just trying to protect her daughter. But once again, I think we have to get out of those things. We have to get out of any reproductive health issue we are somehow causing on ourselves. Ty, what you said about the foods we eat and did I just not do something right? And did I work too much? Did I not take enough vitamins? It's too much. Like it will drive us insane when we think about. So I didn't have another 12 weeks to take off. I didn't have time to go to another doctor to fill out new patient forms. So a lot of people, including myself, go to the internet and we want to find quick solutions. And I was like, okay, well, maybe if I go natural, I've been natural for 15 years now and still have fibroids as I sit here talking to you. After my first myomectomy, I went completely vegan and I had to have surgery. My second myomectomy two years later. 
So I do believe that there is something to a balanced diet. I do believe there's something to exercise. I do believe there's something to overall a healthy lifestyle. But this idea of it's because I ate chicken or because I permed my hair that I have fibroids, I just don't think the science is there to back that up. And I know that that is very controversial. There's a whole community of people who say that there are things that we're doing. And I do believe that there are things that we're doing to potentially heighten it as any chemical disruptors. Scientists talk about that all the time, BPA and the plastic and the water and all of those things. However, to the point of, are we doing something to ourselves to damage ourselves is not something that we can take on when we have under when we are undergoing these changes in our body and we're just trying to manage those things. Just trying to manage it. And I, I mean, yeah. I thank you, thank you, thank you both for like literally sharing that. And as you guys are talking and we're talking about the reasons why it's concealed too, or happens to be concealed, a, a thought popped in my head about just the nature of fibroids, obviously dealing with the uterus. I wonder if this just feels like an attack on what it means to be a Black woman, like what it means to be, to have your womanhood. Did you feel that way? Or Tanika, within your work and what you're doing, do you encompass other women who probably felt that way? I'm curious, is obviously the mental toll in this just being a health scare, and something that you actively have to deal with consistently. But I'm also curious about what is it psychologically potentially doing to folks and and how they interpret being a woman? Can I just add to that really quickly? Yeah. Yeah. Because I know that Black women are more likely to get a hysterectomy to treat their fibroids. And I wonder if there's also something there about the world not treating them as or even like the stigma in our culture about like not being a whole woman. And so the decision is really hard and they're carrying that around and also likely doing it with some shame and secrecy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that the way I would phrase that is black women are often offered hysterectomy as their first option for treatment of fibroids. I was offered a hysterectomy as my first treatment because the doctor was like, oh yeah, no, your uterus is way too compromised. You and your husband need to save your money, get a surrogate and keep it moving. And I was like, wait, oh, what? Wow. what? And, and what was devastating about that is that, you know, you think you do everything right in life, whatever right is. But I was taught that it's go to school, get a good job, get married, have babies. So I was at the point where I got married and now it's time to have children. So when you hear that, automatically goes that, what did I do to deserve this? What did I do wrong that now I'm at this point where this is what a doctor is telling me? But to your point, Ty, I do think that there are these disparities that are placed on Black women when we think about what we've been taught about how Black women endure pain, how Black women's stories aren't believed when they go to the doctor, how Black women are often dismissed. So once again, it comes back to the point that we need to figure out how to be our own best health advocate and how to stand up for ourselves. And I think you said it earlier, Akila, that, you know, I'm just like, it's tiring. It's exhausting to be the financial counselor, to be the person who has to make the decision on whether you need a referral or not, to be the person that says, 
even though this woman is my soror, my my soror did my first my first and second myomectomy, and I felt like I got the care as we were talking about earlier because she was my soror. So, but what about people who don't have a soror? You know what I mean? Right. Like, how can we find ways to advocate for ourselves when the system? the medical system and gaslighting that happens in the medical system seems to be our ever ending story. So once again, I mean, I feel like I sound like a broken record, but it it comes back to having conversations like this, because when you hear Ashley say that, Hey, this was my decision, but I had gone through all of these things before, or when you hear me say, yes, I've had two myomectomies, but I made sure that I had somebody who was in my corner. I made sure I did a health journey. It can help us find new paths and new strategies to handling our health. Totally. I think Tanika too, when you talked about it correlating to health and being very controversial with diet and exercise and things of that sort. I kept thinking, this is why we need more research. This is why we need more research. And I joked with my doctor, I said, why don't people, I mean, I said something a little bit more explicit, but I said, why don't people (laughs) care about us? You know, we're suffering. And the other point that I wanted to just sort of share is we're not we're not talking about this enough. I know when I started looking into different options, I Googled things, but I'm the type of person I like a more personal connection. I want to see people who have actually went through it. And that's why I chose to share my journey online because nobody else was really doing it. Nobody talked about getting a hysterectomy. And I knew that my situation was not unique, but probably new to a lot of people because they've never known anyone who selected to get a hysterectomy so young, right? That's another thing that we need research and we need more conversations like this for sure. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Absolutely. Ashley, I just want to add to that research piece. Our organization has worked with legislators on Congresswoman Yvette Clark, Senator Cory Booker, our vice president, on legislation around uterine fibroids. And it's called H.R. 2007, which is the Stephanie Tubbs-Jones Uterine Fibroid Research and Education Act. And what that will do is give $150 million to our government agencies, NIH, Office of Women's Health, to research the very things that we're talking about, because there is so much gray area, so much gray area. So if we can, $150 million over five years is literally a a drop in the bucket, but it's a start to get the conversation going with our government agencies about why is this happening and why is it happening disproportionately to Black women? Now, let's be clear, fibroids can happen to anyone with a uterus, right? So white women get fibroids um, pervasively as well. But there's something about Black women that we get them higher. They tend to grow larger and we have more symptoms. Our, and our symptoms are bad, <laughs> for lack of a better word, yeah. than um, our white counterparts. So it's to research that. What is our genetic makeup? What is happening in our bodies? And I think to your point, Ashley, why don't people care about that? 
That's it. That's it. When we talk about protecting Black women, it, this is what it includes as well. And so I love I love the work that you're doing to just kind of like get us beyond the fact of there's individual cases with individual results and individual, you know, treatments, et cetera. It's more like what is the collective work that we need to do to get us get us all to a better place? And speaking of that, too, is there what's the aftermath of deciding on the surgeries or as, as you mentioned, Tanika, potentially having to go back and do surgery, but what happens afterwards? What is that ongoing care, living post fibroids, living with fibroids? What does that look like? Because oftentimes when I hear of these stories, again, as I mentioned again, the Cynthia, the piece the, being the first one that I've heard, it's like it happened. It was a moment in time. And then it sounded like, okay, everything is all, all good now. So I'm just curious more about like, because it, it makes it for me, again, being on the outside now looking in, it makes it seem as though, okay, this perhaps is why there's not as much research being done because it seems like it's not that big of a deal. You dealt with it and then you're done. Obviously, hearing these stories, it's the complete opposite. So just talk a little bit more about living post, post-treatment. Yeah, Cynthia is a good friend of our organization, good friend of mine. And I remember when she shared it on Real Housewives, she talked about the fact that she had to go through and and really stress to production why this was such an important topic to talk about. But life post-fibroids is something that really depends on your outcome. Like Ashley said earlier, you know, she decided on hysterectomy because she knew that she just didn't want to deal with them anymore. And honestly, that is the only way. I had a myomectomy in 2013, and then five years later, I had to have another one. And the one of the reasons that I have kept doing this is because of my great desire to be a mother. So I knew that hysterectomy couldn't be my option. But when I become a mother, honey, <laughs> it might be <laughs> because that's how much it impacts your life. So life after a surgery, if you don't have a hysterectomy, is really living to see if they'll come back, and which is not a good place to be. And it doesn't come back for everybody, but I can speak to my personal experience, which it did. And you can have, you know, a couple of years of maybe pain-free periods or your bleeding is not as heavy or you're not as distended or, or bloated. But I feel like for every person who has fibroids, there's that thought in the back of their head that they can come back because whatever genetically is happening that is making them grow, which to Ashley's point is what we need to figure out. Like, where are they even coming from? Like, what's the tea? Um, And I just don't think we know. Yeah. Tanika, I just want to say that or remind you that God does give us the desires of our heart. So hold on tight. Thank you, sis. It's never going to happen when we want it to happen, but it is going to happen right on time. So I am praying for you. Ashley, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Going through the journey right now, like right now, to your point about timing and God, I know God gave me a promise. So I just have to hold on that our timing is aligned. Yes. But I feel like that's why I share so freely about the work that we're doing because I just don't want anyone to feel alone because it's enough to have to go through this to hear something like fibroids being benign tumors, Mm -hmm. but it can potentially cause you not to be a mother or it can potentially impact your relationships. These benign tumors, you just tend to feel like what how are these things taking over my life? Um, So I just never want anyone to feel 
alone. And that's why I do the work that I do. Yeah, it's beautiful work. And we want to thank you both for being on today. And there's a question that we ask all of our guests that we want to make sure we pose to both of you. And the question is, what is your dream for Black women? And we keep it intentionally open-ended. I would say that my dream for Black women, for all of us, to know our value, to walk into a room, because we are the light and we need to shine it bright. I want us to always feel a sense of belonging. I want us to feel included, even when we're not, (laughs) because we're just that healed, you know? Mm, That's what I wish. Beautiful. And I would say um, something very similar. I want us to know our strength and our confidence. We literally are the Black baddest things, humans on the planet. And I will argue with anyone about that because it's, it's our strength and it's what we are able to endure. It's our resilience. It's our makeup. It's the way we think. It's the way we look. It's the way we dress. It's the way we comb our hair. And I just want every Black woman to know that that is so powerful and so impactful. So when we think about what we're talking about tonight, which is reproductive health, I want us to know that we have to have confidence in how we go about navigating our reproductive health issues. Mm. And this is not about whether you want to be a mother or not, because a lot of us don't want to be mothers. want to be healthy. Um, But this is we yeah. just speak yes. on it, sis. Like we just want to be healthy, and we deserve to be healthy. So knowing that that confidence and that strength exists within all of us, I just want all of us to have that. Because when we know that we have that, we're a force, and we can't be stopped. So yeah, I just want people to know that. Thank you. Yes, I'm taking so much away from this conversation, and part of just what I'm taking away is how amazing it is when Black women share their stories. Mm -hmm. And I can't thank you both enough Mm -hmm. for being honest and vulnerable about a topic that it's hard for people to share publicly. So you're doing a great service, not just to me and Akilah, but to all those who listen and all those who are connected to you. So can you let people know how they can continue to follow you and stay connected to the great work you're doing in the world? Yes, absolutely. So our organization is the White Dress Project, and you can find us on Instagram at We Can Wear White. Ashley talked about just wanting to see real people and real stories. That's us all day long, just real stories. And the thing about fibroids is that there's so many variations in stories, so it's good to see what so many other uh, people are going through. So at We Can Wear White on Twitter, where we can underscore wear white on Facebook, where the White Dress Project, and our website is thewhitedressproject.org. And I share my personal journey on my Instagram page, Growing with the Gardeners. Gardeners is spelled G-A-R-D-N-E-R. And then you want to add the S. But uh, yeah, I just share my personal journey because I want folks to know that they're not alone. A lot of people do go through this. There are options out there. Whether you want to carry or not have any more pregnancies, there are options for you. The only thing that we need to get through is just there are solutions right either way so thank y'all so much for for having us i enjoyed this yes thank you thank you thank you i learned i learned a lot (laughs) a lot and i'm and i'm appreciative (laughs) for that 
Now that's a wrap for our guests, but not for our episode. Keep listening as we share our insights and all our thoughts on what we just discussed. So you know what, Ty? Let's hop right into it. This is MTM Reflections, where we debrief our segment. We talk about the guests, we talk about our own opinions, and we talk about some facts on these topics that we know are super important to you, to us, and to the culture. Okay. <laughs> deep breaths. That was deep, amazing deep breaths. and a lot. It was all of the above. And and to be honest, like I didn't go in this conversation as you know, like but beforehand I was like, I don't really know how this is going to be. Is this going to feel like a dissertation? Like with kind of like us just ramming them with, with interview questions because right now, and I say right now, but I knock on wood to say, hopefully not ever, like I can fully relate or have experienced this. And I thought because of that, this is going to be a topic that felt more scientific versus relationship, you know? And and yeah. I was nervous. I was really nervous about that, but it was a complete opposite. That's what I loved about it because there's some, you know me, I can easily go to that academic place and forget just how human we are and how human we are in terms of like dealing with these emotions. And they were so honest about their roller coaster of emotions and all the things they had to consider. I really appreciated that. I'm just learning like... I thought by this point in my life, you know, you think I know all there is to know. And I'm like, wait, start a health journal. Learn there's even more I can learn about my body. There's yeah. more that I can do at the doctor's office. And this whole conversation made me appreciate my black doctor in Oakland. And I actually realized she's mm. not a doctor, she's a nurse practitioner. And the reason why I chose her and not a doctor was because she was a black woman and she has advocated wow. for me and been amazing. And I wish it wasn't the case that we have to advocate for ourselves or seek out exclusively Black practitioners, but sometimes these decisions are life or death. Oftentimes it is, but it also makes me think too, because for me, I'm just thinking of what I would do generally when I'm seeking care or seeking, let's say, this sort of representative. The first thing that I would typically typically do is look at rankings. Who is ranked more here? Who has done research here? And oftentimes that may not correlate with a Black doctor, a Black practitioner. And now, it honestly, this conversation has made me not rethink that strategy, but think about what would I potentially prioritize? Not saying that Black can also be in the best, but oftentimes, you know, it, it may not be that. What you may lack when it comes to just this arbitrary ranking, you will get in terms of attention, in terms of care, in terms of just understanding. And it's making me just think through, as you mentioned, definitely the health journal, like Tanika was saying, but also just when it comes to my board of directors, when it comes to care, I'm thinking through like, what does this really mean for me? Like, do I just focus on them being potentially black? Because it seems like they would go harder oftentimes than not. The other thing that was said that I think is really important is remember when Ashley said, I found another doctor. So I think it's Mm. also about black women being relentless advocates for themselves and not going with whoever is presented. And a a lot of times we don't have time. We... Might many people also like submit to the authority of their doctor, like, oh, this doctor knows best. And it's like, 
you know your body better than anyone else. If you do not feel like you're being listened to and respected and greatly cared for all things you deserve, find another doctor. And so I think it's just, it's might start out with finding a black doctor, but it might also be going through this process. I think about finding a therapist, like that was a dating process. Like I got to find the right one. That's like going to work for me. And it might be the same thing with, you know, other care too. It really would be the same thing. And it's not like they would, they would be okay, but that okay doesn't mean that's where you stay. Like, you know what I mean? It could be just fine for now, but you have to continue. I love that. Like you have to keep searching and being your own representative. And I think the other piece too, yes, you know your body, but what is normal? I think that was a great question that we kind of talked about because your body may, you may feel it's normal because this is what you've always experienced, but that doesn't mean you submit to that normalcy and saying, I'm just trying to get back to normal. No, maybe your normal threshold was already out of whack, <laughs> which kind exactly. of has us all fucked. But at the same time, it's it's a level of, well, how else can we really picture this? Is normal the best way? Is your normal really the best way or, or has your body and the, the people who are oftentimes put in authoritative figures to protect, to detect things because your normalcy was always higher than most, as long as we, you, you stay there, you're okay. When really it's, it's not, you know, know. going that extra mile. I think we've normalized pain and suffering in our lives as Mm -hmm. black women. And, you know, I think about this, a woman in my family I'm really close to who we always joke. She has a high pain threshold. She has a high pain threshold. Yes. And And I'm like, but why? Why would anyone put up with that amount of pain? And I just think we normalize pain. We would normalize pushing through it and not stopping to either address it, to rest. So much, so much. Same, same. I remember the the first time. It all goes back to rest, right? It all goes back to rest <laughs> in the soft life. I think we just need to sit down and take a break. But I think, slow honestly, that threshold for, for pain is huge because... For me, I remember the first time during my period and and where I had to take a Midol and I was so upset because I felt like, man, I couldn't, I couldn't deal, you know? And now I, I do this, if, if the slightest idea of pain, I'm like, no, I'm, uh, we're not doing any cramps type of thing. But beforehand I was like, this is just part of the, this is part of the vibe. I don't want to have any of this in my blood. I don't want to take this. I, you know, I'm okay. That threshold for pain. You know, it, it it makes me think more about not only just taking, they were saying the ibuprofen to cure it, but really just, again, detecting what could be the issue here. Is this a problem? Is this okay? Because on some ends, cramps are normal, so that's fine. But when does normal become something that you shouldn't tolerate? I think mm-hmm. it's more of more of the question, too. So this week, what is your dream for Black women? What I was just thinking about was just the idea of when I was asking about what is next, you know, you you detected the fibroids, you deal with the fibroids, quote unquote, deal with them, and then what? And just the fact that it's not a one and done cure outside of, you know, a full on hysterectomy just really left me a little taken aback, a little saddened, a little just like, damn, like, you know, of course, something that has the highest effects to Black women doesn't as of now have a cure or even have like one foolproof way to truly detect that you're on the verge of of having fibroids. So I think my dream with that is just more so just to have ongoing wellness, like ongoing care, ongoing protection, ongoing wellness for Black women. I want Black women to consistently, even in the midst of fibroids or something similar, or just something that's consistently painful, to not 
feel that pain, you know, not to be living in that pain. I, I don't know. I don't know how the best to word it this this time because it's kind of just, honestly, it was a gut punch to hear that even with all this, it's still not a feeling of okay. And I guess my my dream is to hopefully make sure that throughout the pain, there's some semblance of just well when it comes to being Black and being a woman. I'm gonna what about you, Ty? This, I'm going to have to steal yours because I want nothing more than Black women to have access to quality medical care. And I talked about having an amazing primary care practitioner. And I realized that I've had other practitioners who are not Black. And I thought about how much research I did and how much advocacy I had to do. And I want a world where maybe that's not necessary, where you just have access to amazing medical care with people who care about your, not just survival, but you're thriving. Like people who want to see you Mm. thrive and not just get by. So that is my dream for Black women. I love it. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, y'all, for listening to another episode of Monuments to Me brought to you by Revolt. Make sure that you like, comment, and subscribe. Really tap in because clearly we are tapped into you and the whole you and bringing in the folks who can really chime in on those conversations when need be. Thank you to our guests. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next week. Talk soon. Thank you for tuning into Monuments to Me. A special thank you to Revolt for creating the space for Black women to have important conversations. If you liked what you heard today, and we are so sure that you did, then subscribe, leave a review, and tell a friend to tell a friend about your new favorite podcast. Head over to Revolt.com to stay connected to all things Monuments to Me. And follow your hosts, Ty and Akila, on Instagram. The link is in the show notes. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.